Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm delighted to welcome Renee Kanaki Jefferson, the Joanne and Larry Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics and Professor of Law at the Uni- University of Houston Law School, and Hannah Brenner Johnson, the Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law to discuss their new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, published by NYU Press in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Renee and Hannah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having us. So Shortlisted tells the previously overlooked stories of women who were considered as presidential appointments to the Supreme Court going back to the 30s. And as you explore this history, you provide an extremely nuanced and and somewhat damning analysis of gender, courts, politics, and the legal profession. Um, Before we explore your claims about shortlisting as a a means to appear diverse while preserving the status quo, let me ask you a little bit about how you came to write this book. The two of you have collaborated on previous research. How did you come to to start thinking about these issues together. T- tell me a little bit about, about how you found each other um, and, and what brought you together. So the origins of this book date back about a decade. Renee and I were new colleagues at Michigan State University College of Law. I had just relocated to the very beautiful but cold state of Michigan. Um, I had few friends and was a brand new law professor. And At that same time, there was a lot happening in the national political context. President Obama, uh, as you may recall, was faced with his first vacancy to fill a seat on the United States Supreme Court. And in the years between 2009 and 2010, um, uh, he ultimately came to appoint now Justices Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. So Renee and I were new colleagues. Um, We would run into each other in the halls of our law school. And about the time that Justice Sotomayor was nominated, both of us, independent of each other, began reading voraciously all of the articles that were coming out in the mainstream media about this um, historic nomination uh, of Sonia Sotomayor. And we were struck Uh, independently and then collectively by the way the media was covering this nomination. Um, Sonia Sotomayor was an incredibly qualified, well-educated judge with an impeccable background. And yet the media was focusing on things that we felt were unrelated to her uh, qualification to be a Supreme Court justice. Articles were focusing on uh, the fact that she was single or um, you know, her sexuality. And in the year between 2009 and 2010, when President Obama was, of course, faced with yet another vacancy, and he nominated Elena Kagan, um, these articles uh, continued to, uh, to really outrage us. And as academics, we, of course, have the the power to do more than just complain um, about the, how the media focuses on women's appearance or their parental status or their lack of children. Um, And we decided to embark on a media study uh, to look at how the mainstream media portrayed nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court through a gendered lens. 
we read and coded over 4,000 newspaper articles that had been published in both the Washington Post and the New York Times dating back to the early 1970s. And so we had a collection of media coverage that covered male and female nominees to the court. Of course, at that point, there had been four. And we felt that if we could empirically study the way women were and women were com- were portrayed as compared to their male counterparts, um, we might understand a bit about what happens um, to women lawyers in the legal profession. There are few opportunities to get a public glimpse into the legal profession, and the nomination process of justices to the U.S. Supreme Court provides one such opportunity to get a bit of an inside look. We were very concerned at that time, and we continue to be, at the underrepresentation of women in positions of leadership and power in the legal profession. Uh, in fact, at the end of uh, this study, there were still only, only four women who had ever served on the U.S. Supreme Court. So we, we engaged in this research. Um, we had a number of hypotheses about the way the media portrayed these nominees. We could do a podcast entirely on that, on that project alone. But we're here today to talk about the book Shortlisted and the way that the book ultimately came to be was through our reading of an article as a part of that collection of 4,000 articles. There was one in particular that really stood out to us. And Renee, do you want to talk about this this gem of an article that ultimately led us to embark on this book project? Sure. So as we dug through all of this newspaper coverage, we came across an article written in 1971. It appeared in the New York Times. And it was covering Richard Nixon's shortlist. He was faced with two vacancies. And uh, incredibly, the shortlist had six names on it. uh, Two were women. According to the New York Times article, one of those women was Mildred Lilly, who had no children, the Times reported, and maintained her bathing beauty figure even in her 50s. So, of course, this article completely supported our hypotheses going into the media study. But even more important than that, Hannah and I wondered, you know, who's Mildred Lilly? Why haven't we ever heard of her before? And there was another woman that appeared in the list, Sylvia Bacon. Same thing. Who, who's Sylvia Bacon? Why haven't we ever heard of these women before? We never learned about them in a high school history class. We didn't even learn about them in a law and feminism class. And yet they were sufficiently prominent to make it to a Supreme Court shortlist. And then we wondered, well, how, how many other women were shortlisted for the U.S. Supreme Court before Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice in 1981? And it was setting out to answer those questions that the origins of of shortlisted really come from. And what we learned is that there were nine women who were officially shortlisted by presidents going all the way back to the 1930s. And the first half of this book tells their untold stories of both how they came to find themselves on president's shortlist, but importantly, all of the things that they did, the incredible accomplishments they had in order to rise to that uh, level of stature. The second half of the book 
then dives more into aspects of their personal lives. And there's some, there's some pretty juicy details in there to draw lessons that we can apply even yet today to address the enduring inequality we see in positions of leadership and power in the legal profession, but really in all of professional life. And and that's where the, the book ultimately concludes with strategies and solutions that um, – go beyond just asking women to do more, but actually advocate for structural changes so that we can uh, move more of us from, from the shortlist to being selected. Uh, and uh, there's an incredible letter to the editor that is responding to the article that upset the two of you so much. And I, I was wondering if you would mind reading it because it was it was so striking to me. It was kind of the letter I was writing in my head as I was reading it. Um, but I thought it was interesting that it was there in 71 and that the Times printed it. Oh, sure. So here's the letter. To the editor, your description of the qualifications of Judge Mildred Lori Lilly, biographical sketches of Supreme Court nominees, October 14th, illustrates the perfectly absurd sexist prejudices to which all women are persistently subjected. Why did you choose to objectify this woman and diminish her accomplishments by including such a totally irrelevant and a subjective item? You implied that Judge Lily's body was just as significant as any single professional attribute she possesses. There was no discussion of the health, much less the physique, of any of the other possible nominees. Perhaps you could rectify this inequality by printing a discussion of the extent to which Senator Byrd has retained his schoolboy figure, or the manner in which Herschel Friday fills his swimsuit. Barbara B. Martin, Sketch of Judge Lily, New York Times, October 23rd, 1971. I kind of wanted to find her and talk to her now. <laughs> Thanks for writing this letter. It was just terrific. Well, let's start before before we start talking about these incredible women. And, and what is phenomenal about the book is the way it does combine these two sort of projects. One is exploring who they are and figuring out what happened, but another is very prescriptive. And the second half of this book is, is very much your sort of take on what would have to happen for there to be structural change. Um, so let's start with what is shortlisting short and, and how it helps us identify and explain latent discrimination and bias in the judiciary. Well, this isn't necessarily... So, oh, sorry to you offhand about it. This isn't something we necessarily... Um, sought out to discover. But as we learned about each of these incredible women that we profile in the book and their own individual shortlistings, the collective storytelling led us to a real um, you know, revelation and critique about the shortlist. And so we actually have our own definition that we open up the book with, which we, we define shortlisted as being qualified for a position, but not selected from a list that creates the appearance of diversity, but preserves the status quo. And that's something that we identified not only in what was happening with these women, but it's something that's seen very much today where an organization will claim to care about diversity and say, look at this diverse array of candidates we've selected. And, and in fact, use women on the shortlist as a way to then keep them off it by saying, well, we, we, we considered them, but we, you know, we've ultimately decided to select in this particular instance, um, the non-diverse candidate. But when you step back and take this bigger picture, look, you, you see that there's more going on here than an individual decision, 
but there are actual structural issues, impediments that are holding otherwise qualified individuals back. And you're not just talking about gender, you're also talking about race throughout the book. And we'll get to some of the examples where you make that come together very well. But you're trying to make very broad claims about about how paying lip service to um, by by creating these lists, it causes an enormous amount of harm, not just to women, but to to other underrepresented uh, groups on the courts. Um, would you, let's start off with Florence Allen. Um, she's the earliest, um, and uh, and and I think that she really sets the stage for the other. Um, remarkable women that you describe. Um, I, I don't know which one of you would like to take it, but um, tell us a little bit about who she was and 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 how the the various administrations ultimately uh, dealt dealt with her candid her, her the possibility of her being um, on the Supreme Court. Absolutely. So when we read the article about Judge Lilly, it did lead us to ask the question of whether there were other women who had been shortlisted to the court. Of course, all of the discourse really around gender in the Supreme Court focuses on Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, and the three women who were appointed subsequent to her. But the uh, uncovering the story of shortlisting really tells a whole other story that has up until now been been pretty much invisible. Um, As political scientists well know, studying the U.S. Supreme Court and the process of shortlisting is incredibly challenging because unlike other ways of selecting people in political office, there isn't really a process that gets documented in that same way. You know, we can't look back to see, for example, super easily um, who might have appeared on a shortlist. And so even putting this list together and getting to the place of identifying Florence Allen as the first woman um, was an incredibly uh, detailed and challenging undertaking. And so we are so thrilled that we have this list of nine. Um, and that is a, a beautiful coincidence, uh, not one that we created. Um, but through our research, uh, we we did in fact determine that Florence Allen uh, was the first, um, which is quite remarkable when you think about the political context of the 1930s. Um, Allen was a judge from the state of Ohio. Um, she literally climbed um I mean, she 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 was shortlisted for the Supreme Court, but she was selected for so many other positions, um, ultimately um, serving on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. She was considered um, by three presidents for vacancies on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the earliest was President Hoover um, and then President Roosevelt and later President Truman all considered her um, for positions on the U.S. Supreme Court. And in coming up with our list, we relied on documentation that we were able to obtain from presidential archives um, and other historical sources. Um, There were plenty of women whose names were floated, right, who were suggested to presidents. Um, But our list of nine shortlisted women were women who... um, in some way, shape, or form, appeared on a presidential list. So we could, um, you know, sometimes it was uh, a typed memo. Um, but until, really, until the contemporary time, um, uh, President Trump posted his most recent uh, Supreme Court shortlist on the White House website. Um, there has been really no easy way to access those lists. 
And you also do a great job in the book of showing that sometimes these lists were not really the process. So the person compiling the list would actually end up becoming the nominee or some, or some other variety that doesn't sound like the process that we're used to. And over, over time, uh, can you just very briefly say whether there were trends from the earlier presidents to, to now that would, would be of interest or surprising to, to listeners? Well, I would say that um, one, I don't know if it's a trend, but certainly pattern is using the shortlist for purposes other than selecting the most qualified candidate, right? Uh, So we can go back to Nixon and his shortlist that had Mildred Lilly and Sylvia Bacon on it. He's perhaps the, I would say the the worst offender of, of shortlisting in that we've listened to the Oval Office tapes and, and he as he was considering women for his shortlist, would say things like, I don't even think women should be allowed to vote. He said women were too emotional and erratic. They shouldn't be in the workplace. But you know what? He wanted their vote. And so he used putting women on the shortlist precisely for that purpose. And he also said, you know, behind the closed doors of the Oval Office that he uh, hoped that the American Bar Association, which is an organization that rates judges, would and these, this is his words, let him off the hook um, in putting forward Mildred Lilly's name. And in fact, that is what happened. The American Bar Association came back and rated her unqualified, even though years later, Nixon's White House counsel, John Dean, compared her resume to Sandra Day O'Connor's and said that Judge Lilly was as qualified, if not more so. And so... Um, and that's not not to say that every president has used shortlists in that way, but uh, there's still some of that that I think uh, definitely occurs. You, you can fast forward to Reagan. So he selects a woman off his shortlist, to be sure, and I don't want to diminish in any way um, Sandra Day O'Connor being the first female Supreme Court justice. I mean, she's she was an extraordinary justice and, and uh, you know, should be celebrated in every way. But Reagan, after putting her on the short list and selecting her from it, then went on to have like one of the worst records ever with respect to diversity and putting women into judgeships in federal courts at the court of appeals and district court level. And so he sort of used that moment to check the, the woman box, if you will, and then did nothing more to further diversify the federal judiciary. And then you can look today at how the shortlists are manipulated. President Trump ran on a Supreme Court shortlist. It was part of his political campaign. And as Hannah said, it's it's now publicly posted on whitehouse.gov. And we see it also um, from you know both, both political parties. So Joe Biden has promised that if he has the opportunity to fill a vacancy, there will be the first African-American woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I suppose that means he's going to have to have an all-female shortlist. And while that's certainly one way to make sure a woman comes off the shortlist, of course, in our book, we have other suggestions for important structural reform. But I would say one trend or or pattern is that often the shortlist is not just used simply to select the most qualified candidate. And you show a lot of examples in which, or or perhaps it's maybe just more out in the open, that there's more of an openly political selection process. FDR picks people who have been loyal to him politically. 
anyway, the stories of each one of these are just fascinating. Um, Before we move on, I just want to talk just a a little bit more about Florence Allen and just tell me why FDR didn't pick her. You give every reason in the world for him to pick her. She was, she was incredibly accomplished. She made the short list. Um, so why wasn't she selected? Oh, and, and Eleanor was arguing for her. But So why not? Why wouldn't he do it? Well, I mean, I, you know, if, if only um, <laughs> we had that answer. But I, you know, I, I think that the, the, the sexism that was very explicit um, and blatant of that era is probably um, a major explanation. I mean, you have to remember that there were still law schools back then that did not admit women. Law firms did not hire women. Um, doors were routinely closed to them. And although Alan certainly, um, you know, was an incredibly accomplished and, and highly credentialed uh, potential nominee, um, I think I think that was a factor. I think we also have to um, uh, take a look at just who, just her identity um, and her sexuality. Um, Florence Allen never married. Um, she was uh, in two long-term relationships with other women, um, not publicly, of course, at that time. But the um, many many historians and other scholars have have really speculated that um, that her sexual orientation perhaps was an impediment. She didn't certainly fit the traditional heterosexual. Uh, you know, norm stereotype um, that might have been necessary to make such a bold move in the 30s to put a woman on the Supreme Court. So you talk about um, in the next chapter, the five judges who are looked at before Sandra Day O'Connor is actually nominated to to the court. And and these five women range over uh, four presidencies from JFK up through Ford. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, about what that period of time looked like in which more people were on these short lists, yet we didn't see any change um, in terms of the outcomes of the selection process. Sure, I can say a few things about that. So one thing to be clear is that progress was really slow. So, um, you know, you most of the women that are a part of this study of nine, they're showing up on the same short list that Reagan puts together when he picks O'Connor. And so we go from Allen, the, the next woman doesn't appear until with um, Kennedy and LBJ, and that's Soya Menshikoff who was not a judge. She was actually the first female law professor at Harvard and the University of Chicago. And she was the first female reporter for the American Law Institute, which is an organization that creates the model uh, law, does a lot of law reform. And she single-handedly wrote the Uniform Commercial Code, which is the really the the model for every contract that anyone enters into to this day. Um, so just an incredibly impressive woman in her own right. And the reason why she was even floated is because of a relationship she had with a colleague at the University of Chicago. They both taught there. And then he became uh, a part of the attorney general's staff uh, in the White House and floated her name both to Presidents Kennedy and, and LBJ. 
and then it, again, it's still very slow going. So, um, with Ford, you have, um, the consideration of just one more woman who, um, was also not a judge, uh, although she was a lawyer and, um, his secretary of housing and urban development. And it's not until Reagan that we really see a critical mass of women who are appearing on a presidential shortlist. And, and of course, that, that makes sense because in order to fulfill his campaign pledge, he had to have a shortlist of all women, right? Uh, one of the things I found fascinating about this chapter and earlier in the book is the role of the chief justice in sort of nixing even the idea of having a woman on the court that Warren Berger, like Vincent before, was was asked about it and said, I think that would be a terrible idea. So so these, the, the, the administrations have all of these indications from the ABA, this, this, this supposedly, you know, professional organization as well as the members of the court or the leader of the court themselves as to, as to why this would, would not be appropriate in some way. Yeah. And not just, yeah. I'm not just at the federal level, like <laughs> do, when you, when you think about Florence Allen. So one of my favorite stories about her is, so first of all, she, you know, campaigns all over the state of Ohio to secure the right to vote for women. And then after suffrage, she goes out and asks them for the vote and they put her on the Ohio Supreme Court. But it's President Roosevelt in 1934 that puts her in the Federal Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, first woman to go there. Um, There was not a bathroom available to her. They had to build her uh, facilities appropriate for women. And the, the media reported that her male colleagues on the court, like some of them fell ill and, and took to bed over the thought of having to preside over cases with a woman. So it, it was really, I think, all areas of professional life at that time were completely, completely rejecting the idea that, that women should even be there so much so that there weren't physical locations for women to you know, take care of personal needs. And that was seen for a lot of these women when they went to go uh, apply for their first job. So law schools started to admit women and would have to accommodate them. But employers would, more than one of these women in reading their uh, oral histories or digging through their, their private personal archives, would tell stories that they were more than qualified and employers would say, you know, things like your resume is great. I would love to hire you, but we don't, we don't have facilities here to accommodate women. And that I think, um, well, that then is of course reflected in the dynamic that you're speaking of, which is this total resistance uh, in the role of the chief justices to accommodate women as well. And I think building on that, uh, I don't think that it can be said enough that the structures at that time simply just did not support the presence of women. I mean, if you recall, um, lunch clubs, supper clubs were often only open to men. Um, The way that Supreme Court justices were referred to was with the honorific Mr., um, and we have a great story about how in the book about how um, one of the um, one of the shortlisted women actually worked to sort of help dismantle um, that structure. Um, the judge, when when applying to be a judge, um, the form would often read Mister. So there were just these presumptions and assumptions that men were the ones to occupy 
these elite positions. Um, and there just wasn't precedent, uh, to use a, a term of, of art from the legal profession, um, that, that existed to, um, ultimately elevate, uh, a woman into a, a leadership role. So I, you know, I think that so many things were at play, but that, um, that structure, which again, we get to at the end of the book about sort of how to, um, dismantle and change really, really was, was very, very difficult, um, to break through. Most people think about O'Connor, and one of the interesting parts of this book is the consideration of the four women who were shortlisted alongside with Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, so why, what do these other candidates tell us about um, uh, the judiciary and gender and um, uh and, and just tell us a little bit about why O'Connor ends up being the one who, who is elevated. As to why she ends up being the one elevated, I think part of it had to do with a personal relationship that she was able to cultivate with the chief justice who was re- resistant to women, but um, got to know her and, and, um, became more comfortable with her. I think that was certainly part of what was going on. Um, the other woman who came the closest to being selected is a woman named Cornelia Kennedy. So not only did she show up on the short list, but she and O'Connor were both interviewed and um, Kennedy traveled to DC for her interview. So she, she came the closest, the, the, the runner up, right. And what she would say, what she said in an interview, um, describing why she thought she wasn't selected is it had to do with perhaps the fact that she um, had been appointed by presidents from different political parties, but also her age. And age is a theme that we saw over and over again for many of these women, where they were either too young, uh, that was the case of Sylvia Bacon when Nixon was considering her, or they were too old, and that became the issue um, not just for Cornelia Kennedy, but others. In fact, the the age piece, interestingly, was used a lot, perhaps as a proxy for something else, when Judge Amalia Kearse was vetted over and over again by president. So she became a judge in um, the 1970s uh, on the Second Circuit. She was appointed by President Carter as a part of an innovation that he had created to diversify the federal judiciary. And we can talk more about that. But what I want to say now about her is that she would then go on to be considered. So she's appointed uh, by Carter, but then Reagan puts her on his shortlist. So Democrat, Republican, she goes on to find herself on presidential shortlists over and over again for the Supreme Court. So Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and she was never selected. One of the issues, uh, in the later selections was, was age for her. But I, I have to also wonder if it was age and race. She's the only minority woman in our study at all. And as, as we well know, there has never been an African-American, a black woman on the U S Supreme court, even though there are many, many, many qualified women who could be appointed. I'm glad that Renee raised, um, uh, the issue of race as it relates to Amalia Kearse, because of course, 
um, it was hard enough to get a woman onto the court, um, much less a woman of color. And so um, I do think that 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 point is an important one to hit home. Um, But I wanted to raise um, something about um, Joan Dempsey Klein, who is a judge from California, who really embodied um, she would it seems like so much of her life's work was committed to helping other women. She was one of the founders of the National Association of Women Judges. So when she was coming of age and and, um, coming into um, her own as uh, a judge, there were no affinity groups or organizations designed to help support, empower women in the judiciary or women lawyers generally. She also was a founder of California Women Lawyers, which is another organization um, that meets those ends. And so she embodied those ideas in her professional life and through the service that she gave back. And also, um, although she was one who was shortlisted alongside O'Connor, she also had the opportunity um, and graciously testified on Sandra Day O'Connor's behalf when she was um, being uh, confirmed by the Senate. And so you really just see through the stories of some of these women um, how just how generous, how supportive, um, how collaborative um, so many of them were, even uh, in the face of what I imagine must have been just incredible disappointment. I mean, imagine being the one um, or one of the ones um, on a list to be elevated to the nation's highest court, um, but then still having the um, the willingness and the humility um, to and the tenaciousness to step in and support um, the candidacy uh, of another woman. It just gives me um, chills even talking about it. No, and you do a, a wonderful job in the book of really putting into perspective just you know how exceptional this is. How, first of all, after Sandra Day O'Connor, a, a decade goes by before there is another appointment of a woman, as if that one person was enough. Similarly with Thurgood Marshall, that once there was one African American on the court, there need be not you know there need be no more. And, and you point out that less than half of a percentage of all the justices who've ever served on the Supreme Court are women, and the numbers for people of color are, are even smaller than that. So it's, it's, it's an amazing story, um, especially given the opportunity. I think that had I not read this book, I might have thought, well, there weren't as many candidates. There, there hadn't been enough women in the federal courts to find such appointments. But, but this book really shows that how untrue that is and and how, in a sense, overqualified so many of these women were as they were being presented to the president. I think the book also highlights how this phenomenon that I think many of us, um, or maybe it's a trap that many of us fall into, and that is we see women in positions of leadership and power. So we have now had four women serve on the court. Um, you know, when Ju- when Justice O'Connor was the only woman, I think we tend to see women or minorities in those positions, and we just assume that the problem has been solved. Um, there's actually a psychological phenomenon um, called visibility bias, where you see a representation and you assume that there are in fact more. But when you actually unpack um, the numbers of women who have served on the court since its inception, um, it really is stunning to consider that there have only been four. One of the most important things about this book is that it doesn't just stop here. And the entire second half is really 
a sort of a how-to. Um, you're trying to help everyone tease out how you could make a transition from the shortlist to be seriously considered to being selected. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about tokenism and 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 how tokenism, as you observed it, helped to preserve the status quo, um, and also how it's connected uh, shortlisting, you say, to sexual harassment and just imposes even more burdens. So rather than it being a yay, women are on the shortlist, you actually show it as as having a very, very negative underside. Yeah, I mean, I think shortlisting, um, as you uh, allude to, and as we talk about extensively in the book, um, it has personal, it's damaging on a personal level, and it's also damaging sort of system-wide. So um, along those lines of this phenomenon of visibility bias, where we assume that we've done our work and we don't need to continue to um, promote women um, and diverse candidates for a particular position. But even more so, I think it, it's harmful to individual women who then are burdened with being a spokesperson um, for all women, um, or in the case of um, race, a spokesperson for every person of that race. There's, there's a real danger, um, I think, in essentializing um, into people who are in, who occupy that token that token status um, and is part of the reason why we advocate for having, um, you know, a, a plethora of women on the court. Um, we don't, we don't advocate for a particular viewpoint, but instead believe that uh, the court would be better off um, by having a collection um, of views and a collection of perspectives. And when you think back over the history of the court, um, all of the men who sat on that prestigious place brought their own uh, backgrounds and their own biases and their own perspectives and their own experiences. Uh, and so we've only had the benefit of, of four women um, speaking and, uh, you know, or, or, or having a woman's voice um, on the court in such limited, limited context. One thing that I love about this cohort of women we've uncovered in our study is that they're, they've, they very much reflect the diversity of women across this country in the sense that, I mean, they all have in common the fact that they were very successful, uh, that they all went to law school and they all had to deal with explicit, horrible prejudice and bias and discrimination. But beyond that, they couldn't be more different. I mean, some of the women were, you know, out advocating for suffrage and championing the Equal Rights Amendment. Others campaigned against it. Some of the women were able to navigate raising children and their professional life. Others took a position that women need to choose one or the other. You can't do both well. And they, they really represented different political views, social views. Um, you know, one of the women in particular, Susie Sharp, uh, the first female justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court and the first elected chief justice of any state Supreme Court. She was an avowed racist and she she did not, um, she wasn't quiet about it. And when we discovered that about her, because she'd kind of been one of our favorites for a long time, um, in part because she has this very rich collection of her personal archives and then they're, they're filled with, I mean, every 
trip she took, she kept a very detailed diary and she would also like include like diet tips and like how she would apply her makeup and all just kinds of juicy details about her. But when we learned that she was such a strident racist, we thought, how do we reconcile this? But as we researched more, we discovered um, that she was a judge who could set aside those views. So even though she believed in segregation. She was the judge who ordered the desegregation of private golf clubs and golf courses in North Carolina. And my my point here is just saying that I think um, even the four women who are on the U.S. Supreme or who have served on the U.S. Supreme Court get sort of slated into like, oh, they're the, they're, you know, they're liberal. They're, they're, you know, all this, just one kind of cookie cutter mold of what a a woman in a professional role is. And, and that's because we haven't had a critical mass of women seen in that way. In fact, we often have to remind people that, you know, Justice Sotomayor was initially appointed to the federal bench by a Republican, President Bush. And I think that um, even the diversity amongst the women who have served on the Supreme Court is sometimes uh, forgotten. And that's certainly a consequence of this tokenism. It, um, you know, so what, what's a solution to that, I think, is kind of the follow on to your question. Or what, what do we do about like if we're going to critique the shortlist, you know, what's what's an alternative? And I mean, to be fair, to be selected, you got to be on the shortlist. So it's 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 a huge honor to be on the shortlist, although for the women who don't come off it, it's often not because they aren't qualified, but because of these these prejudices against women in general. And so that um, public vetting can become quite harmful. And you, you see that in our discussion of someone who hasn't come up yet, but Harriet Myers, who uh, came off the shortlist, but was not confirmed. Her nomination ended after about, uh, about a month, about 28 days, she withdrew her name. And one thing that I was really surprised to discover in better understanding what happened to her I think that she was very unfairly treated in, in the media and also um, um, by the, the politicians who were vetting her. And one very concrete example I can give you of that is this. She was mocked in an op-ed written by a, well, Judge Bork, whose own nomination to the Supreme Court failed. So maybe that's part of uh, why he was feeling uh, this way when he mocked her for her work as having been the president of the Dallas Bar Association and the president of the uh, Texas Bar Association, uh, major organizations for for lawyers in the state of Texas. And yet when President Nixon named Lewis Powell instead of Mildred Lilly to the U.S. Supreme Court, he was championing and heralding the fact that Powell had been the president of the American Bar Association. So it was a very similar role. So here we have the same qualifications for a man. It's deserving of championing and an asset for a woman. It's neutral at best. And in the case of Myers was something that she was mocked for. And um, this shortlisting process uh, tends to lend itself to that. You know, the one alternative to this that we also discovered in this research comes from President Carter. And I alluded to this earlier when we mentioned Judge Kearse. He used his executive order power to create a series of panels under an umbrella of a judicial selection commission. And there were 13 panels all around the country. The panels were made up of a group of diverse individuals, men, women, and minorities, charged with 
seeking applicants to become judges from diverse places, they had to have a diverse pool of applicants. And they asked those applicants as part of the qualifications process about their own commitment to diversity. And part of what I loved about discovering this process is that the reason why I think this is true, maybe the only reason why we have a minority woman in this study is because Judge Kearse first served on one of those panels and then ultimately was selected by one of those panels to be placed on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. You make these really interesting points about about rules and structures. And so what what this this example of what Carter did is fascinating and he put more women and um underrepresented minorities on the federal bench I think than any other um president has. I'm not sure. I mean and now that I've said that statistic, I'm not sure it's true. You'll tell me if it's not. What what should the next president do? Um, is is there a better way to do this? If 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 we assume that uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer or one of them step down, how should a president treat that, and in a way that would not be about lip service and tokenism and something that would lead to the to the most appropriate candidate? Well, I think the one of the benefits that any president um, in contemporary times has is that um, the pipeline has been full of women for for decades, um, and there are there are already a lot of women um, who are incredibly well qualified, um, and and that's true across the political spectrum. Um, a number of women, in fact, did appear on President Trump's shortlist um, when he um, when he made that public. Uh, but it, I think it's also important that um, that there's a real commitment to advancing that diversity and that it isn't just, you know, the status quo where we um, continue to see women and minorities appear on the list, but then never um, get off of them. And so um, it just, you know, I think part of part of why we even tell this story and part of why we wrote the, the book um, is to is to illustrate uh, this phenomenon, um, so that hopefully it will not continue to be repeated. Um, you know, there are a lot of really good people in positions of power who have the potential to make selections, whether it's putting people onto the Supreme Court, um, putting them into the position of managing partner at a law firm, um, the dean of a college, uh, or advancing them to, um, you know, a, a, a prestigious chair uh, within a department. Um, but we all deal with implicit bias. Um, all of us, even those of us who are, you know, well-versed in issues of gender and, and, and race and other forms of inequality and intersections in our identity, um, we're, we all... We all, you know, um, deal with that, and so I think um, being able to recognize our own biases um, is is a huge part of of the solution. Um, but again, kind of going back to the reasons that this book we think is so important is that you know a lot of the women had, or some of the women had been the focus of um, of a book um, or research. And um, Florence Allen, as you might imagine, is. Um, you know, one of these first uh, judges uh, to make it onto the state Supreme Court and the Sixth Circuit in her state um, has an entire archive um, devoted to to her um, and her life and her papers. 
Um, but we wanted to do more than just retell each woman's individual story because the power we think really comes from the collective. Um, not that they are all the same, because as Renee and I have um, both been speaking about, um, they could not be more different from each other in so many ways. But the real there's a real power in understanding that this phenomenon of of putting women on the list and then ultimately not selecting them is one that has persisted and it continues through today. And so our part of our hope here, in, in addition to inspiring individuals um, by telling the stories, it's to really create um, real systemic change. Renee, did you want to talk a little bit about, about the, the, the prescriptions that the book is making? Sure. So, I mean, one of them builds on this discussion we've already had about uh, Carter's selection process. You know, of course, uh, not all of us are going to be presidents able to issue executive orders, but anyone who is in the role of crafting a selection process, deciding who will be vetted, and importantly, what the qualifications will be for a candidate in any professional role, can be thinking about the same kinds of composition in terms of who the decision makers are and the questions that are being asked of those being vetted. So I think that is um, one of my, um, if I had to pick a favorite of our strategies. And, and I also uh, advocate for it because it doesn't involve women and minorities having to do more. Um, instead, it's changing the the system to make it a more level playing field. You know, another Example of that that comes from a woman profiled in the book is Soya Menchikoff. So we talked about her earlier, the first female law professor at Harvard and the University of Chicago. She was also the first female president of the Association of American Law Schools, which is an organization that all the law schools in the country belong to. And it's uh, there is a way for um, professors who want to obtain jobs or once you are a law professor for mentoring and networking and learning more about your particular discipline and field. And she noticed when she became president that women weren't really attending. I mean, there weren't that many women law professors anyway. And, and those, um, you know, who were uh, in the academy weren't attending this annual meeting. And she herself did not have children at home. But what she quickly learned is that the timing of the meeting meant it was very difficult for whoever was the primary caregiver and the home to be away because the annual meeting happened the day after Christmas and went through the holidays. And of course, women then and, and often still now are the primary caregivers. So she, she changed the meeting time, which, you know, for some people might not seem like really anything significant at all. But suddenly women were able to attend. The annual meeting to this day now happens after the holidays are over. And I'll tell you, Hannah and I attended the annual meeting early on in our careers as law professors. We won a New Voices in Gender competition writing about that media study we mentioned at the beginning of this discussion. We have been able to attend while raising toddlers and who are now teenagers. And But for that structural change, I, I don't know that our professional trajectories would have looked like they do today. And so that's, again, um, a, a small change that someone can make that can have a, a profound impact on women and minorities who are trying to move into positions of leadership and power. Uh, one more I, I will share, um, maybe two. 
One comes from a Joan Dempsey Klein. Hannah already talked about her, but I, I think of that example where she testifies on behalf of Sandra Day O'Connor in support of her confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court when it could have been her and it was so close as, as just such a great example of collaborating to compete and women coming together in support of each other, even if it means seeing another woman step into a role that, that one might have wanted. And related to that, the real lesson for me in writing this book and spending so much time in the president's archives, in the personal papers of these women, reading their oral histories, their stories have become real mentors to me. And it, you know, I have not had the opportunity to, for example, meet Soya Menshikov in person, um, but she hung on the wall, her portrait hung on the wall of my law school pastor, you know, for three years as a law student, didn't think much about this portrait hanging on the wall. But now I've, I've held her personal papers, I've gone through her files, I've gotten to know her. And even though by the time I started this research, she had passed away, I would count her as one of my most helpful and profound mentors in my academic life. And it's because I've been able to read her story and learn about her story and Part of what we wanted to do in this book was provide that same sort of mentorship and inspiration to our readers and also to encourage others to go out there and, and find out those, those stories and continue telling them. And we follow, can I just jump in for two seconds? Um, so we, we also follow that model in our classrooms. So Renee and I, in addition to being co-authors uh, of the shortlisted book, we've also co-authored a case book called Gender, Power, Law, and Leadership. And we both teach a seminar with that same name at our respective institutions. And one of the assignments that we routinely give our students is to assign a biography or autobiography about a transformative leader um, who is either a lawyer or has made an impact on the law. Because we we want our students to have the same sort of opportunity um, and be exposed to the same sorts of role models and mentorship that we have gleaned from studying um, and becoming immersed in the women's lives uh, who form the basis for the shortlisted book. And so it's just an extension, I suppose, of that experience that we impart to our students. And as a reader, I think you were highly successful. I think that this book is, um, uh, I know a lot about the Supreme Court. I fancy myself knowledgeable about women's history and legal history. I was surprised by so much of what's in this book, but, but mostly I was so impressed with how the stories become ways of telling other stories. We haven't even talked about the way you map these uh, potential justices' stories onto the waves of feminism. This is a sophisticated book that is, on the one hand, incredibly accessible to students and faculty should consider assigning it. Um, second, for scholars of presidential politics, judicial politics, uh, women's history, um, thinking ab about Me Too, all of these things are um, are covered in this incredibly rich, very, very nuanced book. Um, and I am just so thrilled that you wrote it and um, were willing to share with it with me today. And, and I have to say that it 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 
made alive Ruth Bader Ginsburg's When There Are Nine. I've always thought about that saying, and in some ways, a lot of what you are saying about shortlisting and this idea of tokenism makes clear how different the court would look if we just had nine women justices for, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, and then we could reconsider what it would look like to to do it a different way and how odd that would sound to people. That would, But yet, this is what we have had for most of our history. It's extraordinary. Um, are you two writing anything else right now? <laughs> right now, we're, I think, mostly relishing in the book being done. We are so thrilled to be able to talk with people just like we've done today with you um, about the book. And although the pandemic has certainly, uh, in many ways, changed our plans, um, we have also had the opportunity to speak far, perhaps more far and wider than we would have ordinarily been able to do. Um, well, I'm so glad that um, you were able to make time, both of you, in different places, under different circumstances, uh, to, and in different time zones to, to talk. Um, the book is shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, by Renee Kanaki Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson. It's published by NYU Press in 2020. It's available on the NYU Press website, Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon. I'm recommending to people to try out bookshop.org, which will uh, support your brick and mortar bookstore during the pandemic and will ship it directly to your door. So thank you so much and uh, good luck with relishing this and, um, and, and hopefully watching the next few years and perhaps people picking this book up and following some of the brilliant advice. It's been great it. to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much.